0: Welcome! I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, we talked to Ginevra Bersani about her book, Il Coso della Virilità, in which she and her co-author, Lucille Petavan, used hard data on violent crimes committed by men versus those committed by women to quantify the cost to society of a certain type of masculine values and the way men are raised and socialized. Today, we have a short solo episode. We're going to explore some leadership and business lessons and you will get to know yet another side of me. I love sports. When athletes or coaches win championships, very often they write books to explain how their success on the field can be translated to success in business or life. As a student of leadership and Reb New England Patriots fan, for the past 24 years, I have often looked at what made Bill Belichick the greatest coach in sports history. As a contrarian, I have also often wondered why nobody ever writes books about what went wrong when there's a spectacular disaster. So today, I'm going to have a little fun. I'm going to share with you my assessment and analysis of what went so wrong that not only Bill Belichick is no longer the coach of my beloved Patriots, but he's also looking very likely that he will not get an opportunity to coach in the NFL this year. Enjoy the show. Let me start this episode by making a couple of things very clear. Number one, I do believe that Bill Belichick is the greatest NFL coach that ever existed and possibly one of the top two or three coaches in any sport in the history of world sports. Number two, for the past three or four years, I have felt that it was time for him to go as the coach of the Ringham Patriots because he was no longer the right person to coach and run the team. And number three, and most important, that those two opinions are not conflicting, but they can actually live together. And hopefully by the end of this episode, you will come to the same conclusion. Now, to understand the argument, I'm going to bring a couple of the great CEOs of the 20th century and quote them. First, let me quote Andy Grove, former CEO of Intel. There is a very famous quote by him that is often repeated and often abused. The quote is, success breeds complacency, complacency breeds failure, only the paranoid survive. Most people, when they use this quote, focus on the second part of the quote which is the idea that you need to be paranoid and redouble your efforts. And I've been certainly guilty in my past professional life of doing the same. But the really important part of the quote is actually the first part. And it's the answer to the question, how does success breed complacency that leads to failure? Luckily for us, We have another great CEO from the 20th century who was actually very articulate on how success breeds complacency that leads to failure. That CEO is Lou Gerstner, who left Nabisco to become CEO of IBM, and he's actually responsible for one of the most storied turnarounds of the late 20th century. By the way, it's not a coincidence that the person who turned around the giant technology company that was in the middle of a major crisis had no technology experience prior to that. As a matter of fact, not only Lou Gerstner came to IBM from a food company, but prior to that, he only had very senior leadership positions at American Express, a consumer financial services company. And there's a little bit of a parallel in this story to what Bill Belichick failed to do, but we will get to that later. Now, I'm going to share with you what Lou Gersner said in a 2015 interview on Bloomberg TV. He was asked, How do you turn around a successful company? These are his little words. Successful companies suffer from what I call success syndrome, they're successful. So what did they do? They figure out inside what made us great. So they started incorporating all these processes of how to sell, how to build, how to evaluate, how to train. And then all of a sudden the world changes and they see the change in the world, but they don't know how to change the company. A little later in the interview, he was asked about the role of passion for the company in turning it around. And he answered this. You do have to instill people with a sense of purpose, a sense of drive, and a sense that we're going to succeed. But most importantly, it's all about focusing outside. Stop thinking about what we do inside. Start looking at what the customer wants outside and what the competitors are doing outside. I'm using this second part of the quote a little differently than the way Lou Gerstl meant it. But to me, these quotes explain exactly what went wrong with the Patriots and why Bill Belichick is not a head coach right now. I will also say this, one of the reasons for his greatness for a large portion of his career is that Belacher actually had an uncanny ability to see what was ahead and change his approach ahead of his peers. As a matter of fact, I secretly carry a little hope that he will use this year away from football to assess everything that happened, decide he will make the changes he needs to make and come back with a vengeance with the final run in which he will become the oldest coach to ever win a Super Bowl. But. Let's get back to the story and let's get into the details of what went right initially and wrong at the end. Now, quick disclaimer, I'm not going to try to analyze deeply everything that went on. I'm just going to focus on a few traits that struck me from the beginning. Ultimately, the story of Bill Belichick also validates one of my core beliefs. We all have traits that make us unique. Those traits are both our biggest strengths and our biggest weaknesses. And it is really important to be self-aware and recognize when the way we're leaning into our uniqueness is a weakness and not a strength. So as we look at what made Belichick unique, there are a number of points that jump to mind. And many of these intersect with each other. So let me list them and then we will explore them in depth with some examples. First of all, he had a great ability to set up a unique vision and then the discipline to really build around that vision. Second, he had superior subject matter expertise. There are few people who know football the way that Belichick does. As a result of those two, his vision was a vision that put the team and the system above everything else. And he had deep conviction in his choices when he saw things that others didn't see. And he wasn't afraid to make unpopular decisions or take risks. Also, as part of this vision that put the team above everything else, he demanded exceptional sacrifices from his team. And those sacrifices were going to be repaid with winning. It was very common to hear that the Patriots were a difficult team to play for or that they weren't for everybody. So now we're going to look a little more in depth at this traits with some example. The first one, and one I don't think he gets enough credit for, is the fact that from the beginning, even though he was known as a defensive coach, he actually decided that the Patriots are going to have one consistent defensive system and one consistent offensive system. So rather than basing the offense of whatever approach an offensive coordinator would bring in, whoever coach offense was expected to use, learn, and develop the offense that was implemented at the beginning. Because of that, he followed an approach where all the coaches were going to be familiar with him and with the system. And as a corollary, in general, the Patriots were going to develop their own staff and promote for within rather than bringing already successful coordinators. The only exception was when he built the first staff, the one that won the first three Super Bowls. That was a unique staff because he hired coaches like Charlie Weiss and Romeo Crennel, who had worked with him before and who had been raised with very similar systems and beliefs as his, but they also had experience outside of his system. In some ways, it is pretty amazing that he managed to keep this approach and develop coaches and run a successful system for almost 20 years. One could argue that he lucked out when Josh McDaniels was fired by the Rams in 2011, and so he was able to replace Bill O'Brien as an offensive coordinator with somebody who was already well-versed in the Patriot system. But this firm belief in only hiring from the inside and only promoting people from the inside was starting to show some cracks even in the last year of Brady, and he came crashing down once Josh McDaniels left in 2022. With many experienced coaching leaving along with him, the staff was left very thin. And Belichick's unwillingness to go outside for serious, fresh talent was one of the key pillars of his undoing. There are two elements of this that are strengths brought to the excess to become weaknesses. The first one is that essentially he went from only picking coaches that fit his approach, which made for easier transition and more consistency, to only picking coaches that he was familiar with personally or that he had a connection with. The second was that he went from being able to train people from within and believing that that was the best path to actually just refuse to bring in outside input, which over a 20 years period made the organization insular and less in touch with what was going on outside. Connected to this is also a fundamental shift. By doing it this way, as his success gave him more and more power, Belichick went from having a staff that had the confidence and the authority to push back hard, like Weiss and Cornell used to do, to having a staff of people that were tied to him to the hip and that only knew one system so it was harder for them to push back or to provide a different point of view. And if you look at the history of companies that go from great success to crisis, these are two classic factors a management team, too beholden to the CEO or founder and or companies who only promote for within and at some point lose contact with the outside. And in this context, the second Luke Gerstner quote about looking outside rather than inside is really relevant. Now let's look at the second strength of Bill Belichick, his incredibly deep understanding of football. When he started with the Patriots, he was way ahead of the rest of the league in his understanding of the salary cap and its implications. With that, he created a vision for a team where he underinvested in expensive positions and overinvested in less expensive positions, building teams that were stronger along multiple positions than other teams. This approach translated into wins with his famous strategy of eliminating the top strength of an opponent and being stronger in all the areas where the opponent was weaker. He also had the foresight to make two significant changes to his football approach as the league evolved. In 2007, when there was a significant change in the rules, which favored offense, he shifted the team to a team that won through offense. While his reputation as a defensive genius stuck, if you analyze carefully how the Patriots won and how they were built through 2018, it was always a dominant offense and a defense that was complementary to the offense, not the other way around. The second shift... He's at a much more tactical level, but exactly because it is at such a tactical level, it gives you a sense of the depth of his expertise in football. And that is building the offense around two positions that are not traditionally the big pass catching position, which is the tight end and the double tight end, as well as the slot receiver in the middle of the field, which led to a dominant offense built on Rob Gronkowski, David Edelman, and other smaller type receivers, which are also less expensive. And yet, even his enormous football intelligence at the end of the day turned into a strength that became a weakness. While in the first 10 or 15 years of his tenure with the Patriots, he was always ahead of the league, his belief and his trust in his own knowledge and understanding of football over time became just a stubbornness that made him miss the latest round of offensive evolution in the past five years, and in general, how the qualities that make successful players in the current NFL has shifted. When one compares the success of the draft from 2000 to 2014 to the round of drafts in the last six or seven years, the evidence is stunning. In the early draft, he had great success drafting game-changing players as well as great complementary players who stuck with the team over the long term. When one looks at the consistent poor quality across the board of the last six or seven drafts, it is clear that the system and the criteria that are being used to select players is now producing players that may fit the Patriots system, but are not the right level of quality to win consistently in the NFL. Because even when they left the team, very few of them had success sticking with other teams. This is another example of a system that was codified through the success and over time became a hindrance in the long term. I mentioned earlier that the conviction Bill Belichick had in his beliefs led to a willingness to take risks and make decisions that were unpopular or went against the common agreed views in the league. And no decision is bigger than the one that one could easily argue made his career. When we look about what Tom Brady accomplished, it would be a no-brainer right now to pick him over Drew Bledsoe. But in the middle of the 2001 season, picking the second-year six-round pick to remain the quarterback over the season veteran who had taken the team to the Super Bowl five years before, was considered almost like a son by the owner, and had just been given a few months before the largest contract ever given to a football player. Well, that was exactly the opposite of a no-brainer, and I'm not ashamed to say I thought it was a bad decision. It also violated an unwritten football code that players cannot lose their starting job because of injury. In the course of the first 10 years, there are many brilliant decisions that went against the grain or took risks. From cutting players like Lawyer Molloy and Adam Vinatieri one in early rather than one year later, to drafting players that had fallen down because of perceived behavior risk, like Vince Wilfork, or injury risk like Rob Gronkowski, to signing free agents that had bad reputations like Randy Moss or Corey Dillon. Over time though, the strength of seeing value or rather didn't, became a weakness. As the focus shifted to always picking the player that was an undervalued asset over picking the player that was a consensus best player. Only the true diehard fans among you will recognize the names of Dominic Easley and Rezai Dowling, two players who were picked because even though they were injury risks, they were thought to be good value, and and neither of them ended up sticking because exactly of the injuries that they had. And please do not even get me started on selecting Nakhil Harry over DK Metcalf. And in some ways, the overall idea of putting team above individual achievements ultimately became a weakness in itself, as players are valued more for their willingness to be team players and go along with the team rather than an actual talent. Ultimately, when one thinks about the statement that Lou Gerstner made about the fact that systems and processes that make us successful ultimately make us fail, if one analyzes the last five or six years, one can see that actually the main failure was that at some point, There was a belief that the system that was in place was more important to explain the success and the fact that among other players on the team, the Patriots would count on the greatest quarterback that ever played the game. And among other players, a tight end who, if he's not the greatest tight end to play the position, is certainly one of the top two or three. And this is at the same time a little sad and a little ironic because in his press conferences from the beginning, Bill Belichick has always said that players win the games, not coaches. But while this rang really true in the early phases of their career, as he evolved more and more, it has rang a little more hollow. The final part that I want to touch upon is the idea of creating a really hard environment because it is the only way to win. That only works if you actually win. Many people talk about the rift between Tom Brady and Bill Belichick as the main cause of Tom Brady's departure, and it is well documented. But I think that ultimately what led to Tom Brady's departure was his understanding that the team had declined to a point where it was impossible for him to win another Super Bowl. And therefore, it wasn't worth submitting himself to that type of sacrifice. If you look at some of the rumblings and tensions within the team this year, there is no question that players were asking themselves why they had to submit themselves to such a hard environment, given the lack of results. And the fact that other teams were winning with what was considered or perceived as a funner or better work environment certainly didn't help either. So let me sum up the biggest lessons from the Fall of Belichick. The first one is that there's environment change. Our biggest strengths can become our weaknesses. And it is important to keep the self-awareness and keep check-in for that and how we're using our strengths. The second one is that as we become successful, we tend to document and codify the way that we do things, the way that we do them better than others. And we tend to become more insular and to look less and what our competitors are doing outside, what our customers are doing outside. And so it is also important to keep checking, keep the organization, the mind open to new and different approaches so that we do not get caught off guard as the time and the environments around us change. Now, I'm going to close by restating what I said at the beginning. Very few people in any business or sports enjoy runs of success as long as the one that Bill Belichick has enjoyed. And it is in the natural order of things that what goes up must come down. The tail end of his career doesn't change or negate everything that he did in the beginning. And as a fan, I will forever be grateful for the many, many years of enjoyment I had watching this team win. And as mad as he made me in the past four or five years, I remain a huge fan of Coach Belichick. I still think he's the greatest NFL coach in history, and I would really, really love to see a comeback. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, first of all, take a look at some of the other episodes you may have missed. There's a lot of great ones. Then find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends about it and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows ratings and reviews like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars. Stay tuned because after the credits, I will play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information on the episode, go to the website al4ep.com, Spell with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Also, make sure that you follow the podcast on whatever social networks you're on. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by me, Dino Cattaneo. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Saverino on guitar and Jesse Williamson on bass. And now, here is Barn Burning by Susan Cattaneo. Enjoy.